Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of my discussion with Bill Reel regarding the five minute fireside by Elder Tad Collister titled The Case for the Book of Mormon. Good evening, Bill. Uh, good evening to you. We've got three minutes left, and it may be the three minutes with the most information packed into it. It certainly might. Uh, the first part of this analysis that we've done, which took an hour and a half after it was boiled down, may end up being an hour and a half, possibly a little bit more on these last few minutes, because as you say, now he gets into a lot of information regarding the Book of Mormon. He's covering it very quickly. We'll have to cover it just a little bit more slowly so that we can parse it out. Now, in the first part of his five-minute fireside, Elder Collister talked about the language of the Book of Mormon and talked about certain gems, certain passages in the Book of Mormon that were meaningful to him and that were important in his life and in the life of his daughter. He told a story about his daughter and how one of those passages was very meaningful to her. I think that was a very positive aspect of his fireside. I think there's a lot that we can learn as we go down the path that that opens up. We talked about that a little bit there. I will add before we go on, one of my very favorite passages from the Book of Mormon, and one that strikes me with great force and that I would consider scripture is one that I never hear get quoted in general conference or by anybody else pretty much for that matter. It is 2 Nephi chapter 33 and verse 6, and here it is. This is Nephi speaking. You'll remember that Nephi is the one who talks about wanting to be plain in his writing about Jesus Christ so that people cannot misunderstand. Well, he returns to that theme in this short verse where he says, I glory in plainness. I glory in truth. I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. That is the passage. Love that passage. That strikes me. It always has. I consider that to be scripture. Another scripture in the Book of Mormon, but another scripture that I would consider on a par with other elements of world classic literature, which I also have experiences with that resonate with me. And so my definition of scripture has definitely broadened. It still includes the Book of Mormon, but it includes a great deal more. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I'm always reading, always thinking, always listening to things. And there's a lot out in the world that's inspiring. And I've come to grips that all scripture is fiction to uh, at least to some degree. There may be some root of of truth in some of these stories, uh, but that, that these stories are embellished, that they've often given supernatural uh, embellishments of miracles and things like that. And and as I look around at the world, like every religion, prophets, whatever whatever religion we're talking about, those who have claimed to have the voice of God, have always uh, overreached or embellished. And then those that wrote those stories down took those from those uh, those voices and added their own elements to them. And so once I got comfortable saying like, oh, all scripture to some degree is fiction and is is missing the mark. But there's still great truth in there. Like you pointed out in the first episode, even within great literature, there's a, a large amount of truth and inspiration and insight. Uh, I think if we use the scriptures that same way, that this is the human journey 
And this is a sharing or explanation of how humans have dealt with the divine, how they've, how they've missed the mark and how they've gotten it right. Uh, and once you wrestle with that hodgepodge, I think you're dealing with a lot deeper level of, of spirituality and a lot deeper level of what scripture is. Right. And that reminds me of Stephen King's definition of fiction, which he includes in his preface to his novel, It. Fiction is the truth inside the lie. Yeah, yeah. And once you see scripture as, and to some extent, a lie, and you can now wrestle with what humans did that was right and what humans did that was wrong, what was healthy and unhealthy, responsible and irresponsible, I think you're just in a much better place to to grow and develop as a human being yourself. Exactly. Well, let's turn now to the next part of Elder Collister's five-minute fireside, because he is now shifting focus, and he's going to talk more about what he considers to be concrete evidences of the authenticity and historicity of the Book of Mormon. Are you ready to go, Bill? Let's do it. The divine eloquence of the Book of Mormon is only one evidence of its divine origin. There are many other evidences. We have multiple Bible prophecies of its coming forth. Well, to give the audience a little bit of background as to what's coming forward, Elder Collister has a big page. That rustling sound that you hear while he's talking is him turning over pages on a uh, a big, what would you call it, a big pad of paper that's up on a an easel. And he's turning them over and there's writing on it. And this page says other evidences at the top. And then it has four numbers. The first number is Bible prophecy, which he just talked about. The second is witnesses. The third says archaeology. And the fourth says the doctrine. And we'll be spending a little bit of time on each of these as we go through it. And as Elder Collister goes through it. The first thing he's talked about is that there are multiple Bible prophecies of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Now, he doesn't have time right now to get into what those Bible prophecies are, but I was in Mormon apologetics for a decade. You were in Mormon apologetics for quite a bit of time. We both know what it is that he's talking about. And in fact, a couple of months ago in early June, LDS Living published a list of seven of these prophecies. And actually, that was an article that was written by Tad Callister in which he synopsized again, but in more detail than in this fireside the scriptures that he's talking about from the Bible that he believes predict the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And even without looking at that, you and I had both spoken earlier, we know what they are. First one is going to be Isaiah 29 that talks about the sealed book. Another one's going to be Ezekiel 37 that talks about the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph. There's also another one from Genesis 49 that talks about the patriarchal blessing to Joseph, that Joseph is a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. And indeed, when I looked at the article in LDS Living written by Tad Callister, those figure prominently in his discussion. The first thing I'll say is that David Bakavoy, who is a noted LDS Old Testament scholar, has taken personal interest in that article written by Tad Callister. And on his Facebook page, he has begun to write a series of articles debunking each of those examples. The first one he started with was Isaiah 29. And he shows how if you actually look at what it's saying, it has nothing to do with the prophecy 
of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and it is David Bakavoy's opinion that none of the examples listed by Elder Callister have anything to do with prophecies related to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. You can see that at David Bakavoy's Facebook page. I won't go into those details now, but I will say that first off, first off, and we'll get to this a little bit later when we talk about statistics, the Old Testament, and if you include the New Testament too, but the Old Testament alone, it's a massive collection of books. There are hundreds of prophecies contained within its pages. And what we're ending up doing is ignoring 95, 97, even 98 or 99 percent of the writings in the Old Testament and trying to focus only on those very few that we can possibly construe as being predictions of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Now, none of these prophecies are specific enough that a person reading the Old Testament without any knowledge of Mormonism or the coming forth of the Book of Mormon would say, oh my gosh, this is talking about the Book of Mormon coming forth, or this is talking about the way in which the Book of Mormon would come forth. Nobody would do that. It's never happened because it's impossible to do. The only way this can be interpreted is by knowing about the way in which the Book of Mormon came forth, going back reading the Old Testament, and then reverse engineering certain details about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and trying to make it match certain prophecies in the Old Testament. And they are not perfect matches by any means, as David Bakavoy goes to great lengths to show. Instead, really, what we have to do is we have to ignore a lot of the details, perhaps spin the details or bend the details to make them fit what we want them to say. And then we stand back like Elder Callister does and says, isn't this amazing? The Book of Mormon is prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, I'll just give one more example of that, okay? We like to look at Ezekiel chapter 37, where it talks about writing upon one stick this, uh, for Judah and his tribes and his descendants or whatever it says there. Uh, I don't remember it exactly. I used to have it memorized. And then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph and for Ephraim and his descendants. And then take those two sticks and hold them in your hand. And those two sticks become one in your hand. And we look at the writing part, the writing on the sticks for crying out loud. Well, that sounds like a record. So then we make it, the stick of Judah is the Bible and the stick of Joseph is the Book of Mormon. Well, that is far above and beyond anything that is stated in the text. When Ezekiel is talking about God's direction to him to write on a stick for Judah and his descendants, that's literally what it's talking about. Take a stick and write on the stick these words for Judah and for his descendants. And then you take another stick and you write on that stick, literally these words for Joseph and his descendants. And then you take those two sticks, those two literal sticks with that writing on it, and you hold it in one hand. And in the context of Ezekiel 37, God forbid we should actually look at the context, Bill, what it talks about is it's a prediction, an enacted prediction of the joining and the coming together of the tribes or the nations of Judah and of Joseph, because at that time they had been separated. And now the prediction is of a time when they will actually be joined together again. That's what it's talking about. That's all it's talking about. And it takes a great deal of creativity to make that prophecy 
be one of the Bible in the first place for the stick of Judah, and then an extra step for the stick of Joseph being the Book of Mormon, and that those two are coming together in the hands of one person. I remember back when the church had completed its new version of the Bible and of the Book of Mormon back in 1979 and 1981 in that time period, and there was a talk given in General Conference, I think it might have been by Elder Packer, talking about how literally now the prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled because now he was holding them both in his hand, and by virtue of the cross-referencing that was done between the two, that they were being joined in a very literal way. Well, you can see when you actually look at what Ezekiel says, that really takes a great stretch and a great deal of creative imagination in order to make it prophesy of that. So all I'm saying is, is that these prophecies in the Old Testament really don't talk about the Book of Mormon coming forward unless you're willing to extend what is said far above and beyond what is actually written. Your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, so you see a repurposing of scriptures. And again, it's not even that many of them. Let's just take the list of seven. If if Mormonism is the Lord's kingdom on earth, then I would hope we would expect to find a few more scriptures that talk about it. We don't. The ones that we do find that the church utilizes, you already pointed it out, Isaiah 29, for instance, uh, when you read this, there's this idea, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be a heaviness and a sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and lay siege against thee with a mount, and will raise forts against thee. And then we take this one scripture, verse 4, and we kind of take it out of, out of the rest of the chapter, and we hold it up by itself, and we say, uh, and thou shalt be brought down and shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And then later there's a part about reading an unsealed book. And we take these scriptures, and as you point out, when you understand the context, and I want to I wanna preface this, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, which is Latter-day Saints generally have a very poor understanding of biblical scholarship and biblical criticism. They, most Latter-day Saints, are very naive and ignorant to the biblical criticism and scholarship that is out there. They have trusted Mormonism to give them that, and it hasn't. And so when you look at a chapter like Isaiah 29, there is lots of expert commentary on this chapter. And we know what Isaiah is talking about. By the way, we're also ignoring the fact that Isaiah most likely has three different authors, which also poses a problem to Mormonism, but we ignore that. We take this a few verses out of this chapter 29. And again, if we go into the context, it's talking about something very different. And then what Mormonism does is it holds these couple of scriptures up and it repurposes them because it holds to something similar in Mormonism. And in this is the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and then later in this chapter is a recognition of the Charles Anton story, where Joseph Smith takes the characters, gives them to Martin Harris. Martin then goes to New York, ends up running into a few people, one of them being Charles Anton. Martin Harris ends up getting from Charles Anton some feedback on these characters. And, and Martin goes back 
to Joseph Smith and ends up mortgaging his farm. And we, in Mormonism, tell a story about how that experience went. What we never, what we fail to do, what we never seem to do is tell the whole story. And Charles Anton has also told his account twice in newspapers. And we have that version as well. What I'm getting at is that there's a lot of messiness to the story. And we've taken the story, we've altered it to fit a certain way, and then we go find a scripture that says something kind of similar. And even though the chapter is talking about something else, we've now repurposed a few scriptures in Isaiah 29 to fit the Book of Mormon. The other thing we do is that uh, when it comes to prophecy, we also ignore the messiness of this topic. And here's what I mean. We like to pick out five, six, seven scriptures that seem to be, if, if we allow them to be repurposed, they seem to be speaking about Mormonism. And also notice, again, we're isolating those scriptures away from the rest of the chapter, as well as the chapters before and after, as well as what's going on in the context of that, that writer uh, in his culture. And, and so we have a few scriptures that if we do all those things with, they kind of look like a bullseye, but they're really not. And if we trust the uh, scholars and the experts in this field, it becomes clear that these do not represent the meaning that we've attributed to them. The other thing we run into is it the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith takes the Book of Mormon, and there is a timeline there. There are events that occur before Joseph Smith. There are events that occur after Joseph Smith. You have Christ coming, and he's making statements about prophecy. He's prophesying of things to come. You have Book of Mormon prophets who are prophesying of things to come. The Book of Mormon does a really good job. So if the Book of Mormon is a text written in Joseph Smith's day, Joseph Smith is going to have a keen ability to lay out proposed prophecies and have things be fulfilled that occur prior to his writing them down. In other words, when I predict, if I'm Joseph Smith and I'm writing the Book of Mormon, and I predict that Christopher Columbus is going to come along, and I put that prophecy in the voice of somebody from a thousand years ago, it looks impressive. The reality, though, is it's not. Because you're talking about information and data and events that happened before that proposed contemporary writer is writing it. What the Book of Mormon does is it does a really good job predicting events prior to the age and day of Joseph Smith. What it fails to do and does really poorly is the moment that Joseph Smith comes into the picture, into this world timeline, this, this, this eternal timeline of planet Earth is that the prophecies suddenly disappear. And that's exactly what you would expect if Joseph Smith or somebody contemporary to him is the author of the Book of Mormon. And my point being is that as we're talking about Bible prophecy, just to recognize that prophecy in general, it is uh, there. there's a few little things that Joseph Smith seems to hit on. You and I were talking about uh, Section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants the other day in the Civil War starting in South Carolina. Um, but there are also a lot of revelations and prophecies that that we either have to make significant loopholes for how they became fulfilled. There's also a recognition that whoever the author of the Book of Mormon is, they do a really damn good job of laying out prophecies before Joseph Smith's day 
and they do a really piss poor job of laying out prophecies after Joseph Smith's day. And that seems to be indicative of a contemporary product. Um, I, I think when we talk about prophecy generally, or if we talk about Bible prophecy specifically, there are a thousand issues here. And I would simply caution the listener that if you see weight in the prophecies of the Bible, then you're going to have to open yourself up to seeing outside of your Mormon lens and start taking Bible criticism and Bible scholarship seriously. And if you do that, you'll sense, as David Bakavoy points out, as a, as a Latter-day Saint uh, scholar, that there really isn't the strength in this conversation that Elder Collister really wants to point to. No, and for a final example, uh, he cites to Jacob's patriarchal blessing to his son Joseph, as recorded in Genesis 49, where it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall, period, end of blessing. And in the Mormon context now, that Joseph is the Nephites, his descendants, the bow is, and the descendants running over the wall becomes the Nephites leaving Jerusalem and crossing the ocean over to the Americas. And I'm not making that up, that seriously, that's exactly what he says in that LDS Living article, that the ocean was a wall to them, and therefore now this becomes a prophecy. See how clear it is? Yeah, Mormonism does a beautiful job of taking a scripture, making the words mean new things than what the original author did, and then saying, look, see, it's pointing to Mormonism. The church must be true. Right. And this is a very common thing. It's not uh, exclusive to Mormonism. I remember back in the 1980s on Sunday nominations on what I think then was the um, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the TBN. And they had a program on there. It was like a newscast, except it was from evangelical Christians. And it was about prophecy. And they would sit there at the desk. There'd be a man and a woman with really, really nice hair, both of them. And they would talk about the prophecies from the Old Testament and how they were being fulfilled Today And after a while watching that, I came to understand that really there was nothing that was happening today that they could not find a prophecy of in the Old Testament that predicted it. Okay, so we've talked about prophecy. Are we ready to go on to the next thing that Elder Callister talks about? Let's do it. It's the witnesses. There are about 200 statements from the 11 witnesses or people they spoke to repeatedly confirming their testimony of its truthfulness even under conditions where their lives were threatened or their integrity was challenged. So I have to give some credit here to Elder Collister, which is for the very first time I hear somebody in an official position recognizing that we have a ton of statements from the witnesses to the Book of Mormon from either firsthand or secondhand sources. When I joined the church, and as far as I understood within uh, the correlated material, is that we had these witness statements in the front of the Book of Mormon from the three and the eight witnesses. And I was not aware of the amount of times that these individuals had spoken or had spoken to somebody else and those folks reported back what was said. And so, for instance, I think you have, I think it's Orson Pratt, who goes around and collects, uh, as time goes on, he senses that some of these people are dying, uh, that there should be some sense of urgency to collecting these 
these statements. And so he goes around and asks anybody, like, have you talked to Martin Harris? Have you talked to Oliver Cowdery? Did you talk to David Whitmer? What did they say? How did they describe the translation? And Mormonism, one of the things it does really well is keeps good records. And so Elder Collister here points to over 200 statements from the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And some of the witnesses we have very little from. They actually died pretty soon, uh, pretty early in the Restoration Movement. Um, we have other witnesses who lived long lives and spoke dozens upon dozens of times. And I would simply want the listener to go find those accounts, and we will leave a link. I think the easiest one to point people to is Fair Mormon, where they have all of those accounts listed. What I would challenge you to do is to go read every one of those and make mental notes of discrepancies and contradictions in what these witnesses say. We talk about the three witnesses having a spiritual experience. We tell the story about how David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery first see this vision, but Martin doesn't have enough faith, so he goes off into the woods. And then Joseph catches up with Martin later, and they they talk it out, why Martin's you know lack of faith is blocking this visionary experience. And then he has one. That's very similar, if not the same, to Cowdery and Whitmer. And then we tell the story about how the eight witnesses go out in the woods. We've got artwork that depicts it laying on a log, uh, the, the plates and them flipping through them. When you go read the statements, what you find is uh, a hodgepodge of discrepancies and contradictions. Some of these men speak about seeing this with uh, spiritual eyes or seeing it in a visionary state. There's also John Whitmer points to that he was only with three other people and the four of them saw the plates in the Smith home and supposedly then another four went out into the woods. And so there are times where we're talking about these witnesses talk about how the eight of them had this experience. Uh, and there's other times where there's mention of it being two groups of four. There's mentions of it being a physical experience. There's other mentions of it being a spiritual experience. There's a mention of them getting a chance to see the plates and flip through them. There are other statements that point to the plates being obscured from view and they had to see them with their faith not with their physical eyes. And so when you go through these statements, and again, I don't think this is the, the, the nail in the coffin against Mormonism. It's just a recognition that when you read all of those statements, it's not as clear cut as the church wants to paint it. And there are credibility issues and there are um, experiential issues with the way that these witnesses are describing these experiences, especially when you look at how they report back at various times in their life, John Whitmer at times contradicts himself. Martin Harris at times contradicts himself. Um, when you sense that, you begin to realize like, oh, maybe this story isn't as clear cut as I was told. And maybe these witnesses aren't really as credible um, as, as one would, as a church would propose. And I'm interested, RFM, your thoughts. I mean, you're, you're a lawyer. Um, you work in the field of law. What are your thoughts in terms of these witnesses and whether these 200 statements would hold up kind of in a court of law type of uh, scenario? 
Well, the 200 statements is an inflation of the 11 witnesses. He says there are uh, around 200 statements, but it, they all trace back to the same 11 witnesses. Now, when 11 witnesses give multiple statements, that, of course, lends itself to the possibility of discrepancies between statements from the same witnesses as they're given over time. But I think that the main thing for me is that there are some elements of these witnesses that I find compelling, specifically David Whitmer. David Whitmer is one of the three witnesses. He has a spiritual experience with Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and we all know what that is. But later in life, actually rather early in life, first of all, he leaves the church over doctrinal disagreements with Joseph Smith. He leaves the church in the 1830s, and he stays in Missouri. He goes, uh, becomes a, um, a businessman of some notoriety in the community, some reputation. And later on in life, I think it's like the 1880s or so, he's in Missouri and there is a newspaper report that's run, I think it was in New York, saying that he had denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon. And he was so upset about that, that he got the most noted members in his community who knew him to be a man of honesty and integrity to write a declaration saying, hey, we know David Whitmer. He's honest. He has integrity. And then he buys with his own money a full page ad in that same newspaper and maybe other newspapers, too, if memory serves, a full page ad repeating his testimony of the Book of Mormon and specifically denying the allegation that he had ever denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon. And he publishes that along with the declaration from the other prominent citizens that he is a man of integrity and trustworthiness. Now, that says something to me. David Whitmer is also the person who, when he died, he actually had his testimony of the Book of Mormon inscribed on his tombstone. So David Whitmer, I believe, is a man who honestly believed that he had experienced a vision. Those are the actions of someone who is saying what it is that they believe honestly to be true. Now, you could have other explanations for it, like, well, he committed it to, he committed himself to it early on. He never wanted to say he was a liar. I don't find those as likely. They're always possible, but I think that the preponderance of the evidence here indicates that he had an experience that he wanted to bear testimony of throughout the rest of his life. Of course, we have to take into account the fact that in spite of that experience, he parted ways with Joseph Smith relatively early on, but that never affected his testimony. So that's one side of things. And I think that that cannot be gainsaid, that David Whitmer, at a minimum, believed that he had experienced this and he testified of it throughout his life and indeed even after his death by means of his tombstone. On the other hand, I have to take into account the fact that one of the offshoots of Mormonism after Joseph Smith died in 1844 was James Strang, S-T-R-A-N-G, who took a colony of Mormons up to Beaver Island, which I believe is in Michigan, and established a church there. He claimed to have a letter written by Joseph Smith, which he produced only after Joseph Smith was dead, but a letter from Joseph Smith appointing him, James Strang, as the next president and prophet of the church. And upon that authority, he based his church. Now, he didn't just go up there and say, hey, I'm the president. He also produced metal plates. And he claimed that these were the plates of Laban from the original plates. And he translated those plates into a document which he called the Law of the Lord. And I believe there were 18 
of these metal plates, which were inscribed, and he did exactly what Joseph Smith did. He didn't have eight witnesses. He had seven witnesses who testified and signed a document saying, we've seen these plates, they're curious workmanship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he repeated what Joseph Smith did with witnesses. Also, interestingly, none of those seven witnesses is known to have ever denied their testimony of these plates. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that even though Joseph Smith has witnesses to the Book of Mormon, so does James Strang to his plates of Laban. And so if we're going to be honest, or at least if I'm going to be honest with myself, am I going to follow James Strang and believe that what he said is true based upon the testimony of his witnesses because that's the same kind of testimony that was had of the Book of Mormon through Joseph Smith. It becomes quite confusing after a while, so it's hard to say exactly which side the evidence should fall on. I also want to add that we, we have to recognize that the out of the 11 witnesses, the three claim to have a spiritual experience. Martin Harris... Uh, let me start with Cowdery and Whitmer. Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, uh, according to at least some of the statements, essentially are laying on the ground with Joseph Smith and looking up at the sky, and they have a visionary experience. That, on its own, is has to be dealt with in that way. Like, in other words, it's one thing if they say, look, I was having a physical experience, an angel came, I showed me the plates, I held them, they were heavy. It's a whole nother thing to say, I dreamed a dream or I had a vision. Um, that, that is when you deal with something on that spiritual level, you're already in the abstract and in the arbitrary. Um, when we look at the eight witnesses, the church claims they had a physical experience. But even some of their statements point to it being a spiritual experience or them not really being able to see the plates. They were left in a box and they had to see them through faith, or they were wrapped up in a cloth and they couldn't actually uh, see them, but had to just like feel them uh, through the cloth. Or uh, as Emma points out, I heard them rustle like metal, but they were covered with a sheet or a cloth. When you start to see these statements on that level, even the physical experience isn't perhaps as physical as the church wants to impose it is. It's not, it's not clear that these plates are just sitting on a log and these eight people are just messing around with them and flipping them and turning them over. So you have to back off of the level of strength and what these testimonies mean when you run into this kind of, um, these kind of differences, these kinds of uh, whether it be contradictions or, at the very minimum, some level of discrepancies in these statements, it, this just doesn't hold up as saying, like, look, this was absolutely a physical experience. This is ex absolutely how it happened. These men absolutely saw these things. It, it just doesn't hold up that way when you look at all of these statements collectively. Right. So, my conclusion is, I think that the witnesses for the Book of Mormon is one of the strongest things that you can say for the Book of Mormon and the existence of the plates. But on closer examination, the strength of that tends to become somewhat diminished. Not completely at all, but somewhat diminished. Yeah, I'm with you. The, I, I also agree that of all the things in Mormonism that the critics and the apologists are fighting over, 
I think the witnesses may be one of the stronger ones uh, working in the church's favor. It's just not without problems. Right. And so, like I say, if I'm going to believe those witnesses, why should I not believe the witnesses that James Strang had of his plates? Yeah, and it's more than that. Just recently, there's some guy down in like Brazil who claims to have the plates, claims to have the sort of Laban, and he's got 10 or 12 guys who are standing uh, as witnesses for him saying they've seen them, that they've seen angels. Um, it, when you look at human history collectively, humans have been having spiritual experiences with angels in God since the beginning of time. And Mormons would easily say, but yeah, but those 99.9% of those aren't real. The only real ones are inside my tradition. And the reality is, like, you can't do it that way. That's not fair. And so once you see human history and you recognize, like, people in the various uh, uh, factions of Mormonism have had those kinds of experiences, and then people at the world at large have had those experiences, Catholic uh, people have seen Mother Mary uh, Catholics have seen uh, various angelic uh, visitations. Uh, you go into other traditions outside of Christianity, there are people who claim to see angels. Uh, just yesterday, as you and I were doing a part one, I had on my desk the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon as translated by, I think it's Chris uh, Nemechiah, something along those lines. And this book is huge. And it looks like scripture and it sounds like scripture. And this guy has got people who absolutely swear that through spiritual experiences, they know his experience is true. Once you understand that this is not a Mormon phenomenon, but this is how human beings have interacted with spiritual things since the beginning of time, the witnesses for me just hold a lot less weight, especially in light of the discrepancies. Right. And from an apologist point of view, back when I was an apologist, I, I could understand, I could understand why it was that people who want to put themselves forward as a prophet in the same tradition, in the same sense as Joseph Smith, want to have plates, want to have writing on them, want to translate them, want to have witnesses of them, want to have those witnesses write down their testimony, right? Because that shows that sort of line of authority. I understand that, but it drove me crazy. Because every time one of them would show up, whether it's James Strang or now this person down in Brazil, and I think I have heard something about it, I recognized inside that that diminished the strength of my argument about the Book of Mormon witnesses. Right, right. You have to you have to look at all of this uh, in light of each other and not isolated in a vacuum. Right. And so, frankly, what I would do is I would talk about the Book of Mormon witnesses, and I would never mention the witnesses about James Strang. No need to go there. The person I'm talking to doesn't need to know that. And I'm certainly not going to talk about this guy down there in Brazil, and I'm not going to talk about this new translation of the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, because we don't need to go there in order to make my point. I'm just going to argue one side of the coin and hope that the person I'm talking to does not know about the rest. Yeah, and except that when you lay out everything on the table, all of a sudden the strength of your argument significantly decreases, which is the reason why you try to isolate it in a vacuum. Okay, are we ready to go on to the next point? Roll the tape. In addition, time is on the side of the Book of Mormon. As new archaeological evidences are unearthed, such as the discovery of ancient metal plates, cement, and domesticated barley, all of which were claimed to be anachronisms at one time, but since have been unearthed as additional testimonies of the Book of Mormon. At this point in the fireside, 
Elder Callister goes to archaeology, which he wants to say supports the Book of Mormon, and he gives three examples of the discovery of ancient metal plates, cement, and domesticated barley. Now, there's a number of things that I need to say about each of these issues, but before I get there, I want to talk about statistical probabilities, all right? The first thing is that we have to understand as a basic premise that the number of misses in the Book of Mormon related to archaeology substantially outweigh any purported hits that there are in the Book of Mormon. So great is this number of misses, and so badly does the Book of Mormon fit the context of ancient America where Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon came from, i.e. the hill Cumorah that he dug it out of. It misses it so badly, Bill, that in the last 40 years, the Mormon intelligentsia have been compelled to move the location of the Book of Mormon narrative thousands of miles away from where Joseph Smith said it occurred to Central America. Now, that is so important that I've got to say it again, because really, this only occurred to me, this only crystallized for me yesterday morning as I was studying and preparing for this podcast. The fact is, is that the Book of Mormon itself is such a bad fit for where Joseph Smith said it came from in New York, that Mormon intelligentsia, the smartest people we've got, the best apologists that we have in Mormonism, have been compelled in the last 40 years to move it thousands of miles away from where Joseph Smith said it occurred to Mesoamerica. Let me say, RFM, um, Mormonism would want nothing more than that large drumlin in New York to be the Hill Camorra, but it fits so poorly that, as you point out, they had to create a new hill and a new place in order to not run into the mountain of problems. Right. And now there's this huge running gun battle between, if I call it the fair Mormon Mormons, this intelligentsia, whether it's John Sorensen, Dan Peterson, all these really, really smart guys who have moved it down to Mesoamerica. And they're having a running gun battle with, uh, I think it's, is it Rodney Meldrum or Ron Meldrum? Anyway, the Heartland Theory group. And the problem is that the Heartland Theory group says, no, it happens where Joseph Smith said it happened. And they've got a whole list of quotes from Joseph Smith and other early church leaders showing that, yeah, actually, Joseph Smith said it happened here at the Hill Cumorah in New York. And this is the land of the Nephites and trying to fit it in there. They have all that evidence on their side that that's actually where Joseph Smith said it occurred. And the people who are the fair Mormon Mormons, or we used to call them the farms Mormons, the ones who say it's in Mesoamerica have this uh, sometimes heated argument and disputation between them because it doesn't fit in New York. Joseph Smith said it was in New York. It doesn't fit in New York. So we're going to put it in Mesoamerica where they feel it's a better fit. Now, it's really not that great a fit in Mesoamerica either. But for them, it's a better fit in Mesoamerica than it is in New York. And that's why we now have two Camorras in the church, two Hills Camorra. There have been for years... Uh, Mormons interested in this issue who have looked at the Drumlin in New York and tried to uh, find evidence that there are metal plates in that hill, that there are millions and millions of skeleton bones in that hill because you have the final battles of the Nephites and Lamanites. You have the final battle of the Jaredites and the books tell us the numbers that are involved in these wars is in the millions 
And yet this is just a hill with no such kind of thing in it. And so as uh, Mormons have had to deal with this issue, that hill in New York simply doesn't match the use of the hill and what should be in it based on the story of the Book of Mormon. You also have issues with certain weapons of war, for instance, swords. You have issues with certain kinds of animals, horses and elephants. Uh, you have certain types of plant life that are mentioned. And what you find is that uh, both the South American, Central American model, as well as the Heartland theory, uh, there are a hit or two in the Heartland theory, and there's a hit or two in the C Central American theory. And the geography seems to work a little better in Central America. And maybe a few more of the uh, mentions of items work a little better in the Heartland theory. But both are not without dozens and dozens of problems. And I I'd love to hear you go into more about coincidences and and probabilities and when we should find uh, that there will be hits, even when that's not an indication that something's true. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about probabilities. And I'm going to do this in hopefully a way that won't be completely dry. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about cards. And by that, I mean playing cards. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is solitaire. I may segue into some magic because I'm an amateur magician and have been ever since I was in fourth grade. Well, in fourth grade, my dad taught me a new way to play solitaire. There's dozens of ways to play solitaire. I'm familiar with just a couple, probably the ones that the audience is familiar with, but this one may be new to you. Here's the deal. You take a deck of cards, 52 cards, remove the joker, you shuffle up the cards, and then you take them in your hand, you turn over the top card, lay it face up on the table in front of you, and you say ace. And if that card is an ace, you lose, all right? The idea is not to have the card you name be the card that's face up in front of you. And after you do that, you go ace. The next card, you turn face up in front of you and you say two. And by the way, what you're going to be doing as you go through the deck is saying ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, jack, queen, king. Then you start again at ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, jack, queen, queen. And you're going to do that four times, obviously. All right. The idea is to go all the way through the deck as you're turning up cards and saying ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, jack, queen, king, and get through all the deck without ever once having the card that you're turning up in the shuffle deck face up in front of you without ever once having that card match the card that you are stating out loud. Take the top card, turn it face up. You say ace. If it's an ace, you lose. That's why you lose if it matches. But the odds are it's not going to be an ace. The odds are 1 in 13 that it will be an ace, right? So sometimes it will turn up as an ace, statistically one out of 13 times, but usually it's not going to be. So you go to the next card and you say two. Well, the odds are that second card is not going to be a two either. So when my dad explained this to me, I thought, well, that doesn't sound very hard. It sounds like it would be very easy to go through the deck in this manner and never once hit the card that you're saying out loud. Well, when you stop and think about it though, Bill, here's what happens. The odds are one in 13 that the first card is going to be an ace. The odds are 1 in 13 that the second card is going to be a 2. But if you look at both of those two cards together, the odds are 2 in 13 that both of those will miss. In other words, it's 1 in 13, the ace will not be an ace. It's 1 in 13, the 2 will not be a 2. 
But when you talk about the first and the second card not being an ace and then not being a two, that's two and 13. If you go to the third card not being a three, that's three and 13. And so on until you get to the first 13 cards. And by the time you're done with the first 13 cards, if you're following me and if I'm doing my statistics correctly, the odds are 13 in 13 that the first 13 cards will not match the cards you're stating. Put another way, that's one in one. Those are even odds at that point. So you have an even chance of hitting one card that you're naming in the first 13. So you would expect to have at least one hit, statistically speaking, in the first 13. But now you're going to do it three more times, right, as you go through the whole deck. And as you go through the whole deck and you get to the end of the deck, what you find is that there's a one-in-one chance of hitting it in the first 13. There's a two-in-one chance of hitting it in the second 13, a three-in-one chance of hitting it in the third 13, and a four-in-one chance of getting it through the entire deck without once hitting a card that you name. So the odds are four to one against your getting through the entire deck without once hitting a card. Put another way, the odds are that anytime you go through a deck, the probability is that you will hit four cards that match the card that you're stating out loud. Now, is that exercise and that game of solitaire clear enough? Yeah. So essentially, when you say 13 to 13, you're not saying that there's a 100% chance. I don't want listeners to confuse that there's a 100% chance that you're going to hit something. Rather, it's now 50-50 after you get through those first 13 cards. It is, like you said, it's an even chance that I'm going to uh, have the exact card that I'm not wanting versus having the other 12 cards, one of them. And as you go through that now four times, you have actually made it highly probable that you are going to essentially lose the game. Um, I think it works out, if I'm not mistaken. You'd have to play the game. You're on average going to lose three out of every four times you play um, that game of solitaire. Four out of five, perhaps. I'm not perfect at this. But for example, if you take a deck and you shuffle it, right? I was doing this yesterday just uh, to see. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, top card, ace. By the way, that's not an ace, it's a queen. Two, three, four, five. Oh, I hit a five on the fifth card, right? So you only go down five. I'm not going to go through the whole deck. But what seems to be something that would be easy in actuality is something that ends up being very difficult. Okay, so now having said that, Joseph Smith is mentioning a number of things in the Book of Mormon. He is mentioning things like barley. He's mentioning things like steel. He's mentioning things like horses, elephants, goats, swine, cattle. He's also mentioning cattle in the Book of Mormon. He's mentioning wheels, wheeled vehicles, apparently, in the Book of Mormon. He's mentioning metal money or metal weights in the Book of Mormon. He's mentioning a number of things in relation to the Book of Mormon Times. And all of these things, except for the exception of elephants, all of these things are in Joseph Smith's immediate cultural environment. He knows about all these things. They are around him. And I think it's fair to say that he would assume that if they're around him now, they probably were around, oh, a thousand years ago during Book of Mormon times without being aware that many of these items, whether it's the, the steel or whether it's the horses, were actually brought over by Europeans after Book of Mormon times. Okay. So he's writing down in the Book of Mormon many things that are 
present in his environment. And what we find out is that a lot of those things are misses. In other words, a lot of those things, according to the best scholarship we have now, were not in existence in Book of Mormon times. They actually came later or in some instances much earlier and had become extinct before Book of Mormon times. So this is a problem for Joseph Smith. And yet there are some things that he mentioned that were actually around in Book of Mormon times as well. All right. So he's got a handful of hits, but he's got much more misses. It should be noted that if we take out any other knowledge or information of how things came to be and how they became present in one's milieu, if I were to name, again, if I am completely unknowing of how long things have been around and I'm completely unknowing of how they got here and when, it it seems rational that if I were to name two dozen things that are in my environment, especially when we go back, like again, take, take technology out. Um, we're just talking plants and animals. So let's even set wheels off to the side for a moment. If we're just talking plants and animals, if I name things that are in my current Palmyra, New York environment today, the logic seems to indicate that if we go back 400 years, most of those things should be present still anyway. What Joseph Smith does is he actually names things. He could have named things that were present three or 400 years ago that were also present in his environment. The things he named, the majority of them are not present. In other words, he actually did a really piss poor job at guessing and he got a lot of things wrong. And so while we want to try to, while apologists want to say like, there's a bullseye, there's a bullseye. The reality is we're starting from the position that we should find all of them. They're present in 1820 and 1830 in Palmyra, New York. We should expect to find all of those 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And as we go through the list, we are crossing them off. He is getting the, the, the misses are bullseyes for the critics. It's not the other way around. Right. I hear what you're saying. And I want to go ahead and I want to mention this fact. And I want to talk about ESP cards here in a second. Okay. But what I want to say is that if you've got two sets of information, like two buckets in front of you, and one bucket has a bunch of data points or facts in it, and the other bucket has a bunch of data points or facts in it. And what I'm trying to say here is that there's a bunch of data points or facts that are set forth in the Book of Mormon. And there are a bunch of data points and facts that are set forth in the history and the archaeology that we know about from ancient America. The greater the number of data points in both buckets, the more the odds increase that you're going to have matches between the two. Okay, now let me talk about ESP cards for a second because what I'm driving at here is that we would expect there to be a certain amount of matches or in other words, what sometimes is called bullseyes between the Book of Mormon and ancient America or in some cases the Near East. And that those hits actually fall within the realm and the parameters of statistical probability. So let's talk about the ESP cards. I don't know if the audience knows what those are. You didn't when I talked to you about them yesterday. An ESP deck is 25 cards. And there are five different symbols that are the ESP symbols, right? 
One is a square, one is a circle, one is a star, one is a set of three wavy lines, and one is a plus sign. And there are five cards with each of those signs on them. In other words, there are five cards with a circle, five cards with the wavy lines, etc. So that's five times five. That's a total of 25. That's why there's 25 cards in the ESP deck. And the idea then is that you hold up a card so that the person that you're testing cannot see the front of the card. They can only see the back. The backs are all identical. If you've seen Ghostbusters, this is the opening scene in Ghostbusters with Vinkman testing the two students at the, the college, right? About their ESP. It's a hysterical scene. We don't need to go into that here. But the idea is that the person that you're testing is supposed to see if they can guess, and I'll put that in quotation marks, guess what the symbol is that they can't see on the first card. If they can guess it, then you write that down as a yes. And if they can't, you write it down as a no. And then you go on to the next card and so on throughout the entire deck. Now, the statistical probability, Bill, I'll ask you the question, okay? What is the statistical probability of your getting five of those cards right just by chance um it feels as though there's probably a 50 50 chance of getting five out of 25 correct exactly that is exactly what statistics would tell us based upon pure guesswork alone that a person is going to get five out of five just like if you did five of the cards right you got a one in five chance of getting it right just if you guess i mean if you said the exact same thing if you said circles 25 times right you're going to get five out of 25 right because five of them are circles. So that is not supposed to show any significant ESP ability. And actually, if you go like from three to maybe seven, that's actually the statistical probability or likelihood. That's where the vast majority, like 79% of people are going to come up with by chance. Eight is a little bit higher, but you're going to have that every now and again, too. That'll happen several times. But what I get the sneaking suspicion of that Elder Callister is doing is he is showing that Joseph Smith out of an ESP deck of 25 is getting five hits, which is the statistical likelihood. But then he's claiming that this shows that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon is proven true by archaeological evidence. Yeah, like you say, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be every 30, 40, 50 people who do the test, there's going to be somebody who only gets one or two right. There may even once every 150 times be somebody who gets zero. There's also going to be the other side of the coin, which is every once in a while, somebody, as you pointed out, is going to get eight or nine. And then once every 150 to 200 people, maybe somebody gets 11. But again, it's not, it's within the realm of chance. One of the games I love is roulette. And in roulette, there's a strategy called the Martingale strategy. And the way Martingale works is I bet five bucks on black. And if black loses, I now put 10 bucks on black. And if black loses again, I just double down. Now I'm 20 bucks on black. And it loses again. Now I'm 40 bucks on black. The chances of there being seven or eight or nine blacks in a row is so slim to none that almost every time, if you have enough cash to bet, you are going to win. You're not going to win much, but you're going to win. The trouble with the Martingale strategy is that once out of every 150 times you play roulette, it is going to be 8, 9, 10, 11 of the other color in a row, and you are going to lose so much 
that you're going to have lost 10 times what you won playing the other 149 times. And so you uh, sense like, oh, my chances are really, 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 really good. And the reality is if you play long enough, it's going to bite you in the ass. That's a good example. I hadn't heard of that strategy before. So if we can take this, and actually, let me just tell you one other story, okay? Because I, I mentioned magic, and I haven't really talked about magic yet. Uh, I used to do all sorts of magic tricks, a lot of them with cards. Cards are very useful for magic tricks as well as for solitaire. And I just want to tell you this one interesting instance that I had. It happened once in my lifetime, but it did happen. I will vouch for it. I am showing a spectator. It was actually at a bowling alley. It was like 30 years ago. Showing them card tricks. And this is a hard sell spectator. They are not buying anything that I'm selling. It's one of the spectators that isn't happy just being entertained. They want to pick up things apart and say, I know how you did this. So now I'm down to my second tier of card tricks. The The first tier of card tricks have not amazed. I'm going to the second tier because now this is a challenge, right? Game on. I'm going to fool this person. And there is, it's a really bad trick and I had never really done it before. I've never done it since because it's a bad trick. It's very complicated. Let me just explain basically how it works is what you do is they shuffle the deck and then you say, okay, think of any card, right? And then you say, is your card like the queen of hearts, right? You just pick any card out of your, out of the air. Is it the queen of hearts? They say no, right? Because that's not supposed to be their card. And you take this as the opportunity to say, okay, well, let me look for that card in the deck. Now you take the shuffle deck, turn it face up, look for their card. You can arrange things, get things set up. And now you're ready to really start the trick in earnest. Everything else leading up to that is just an excuse, right? To turn the shuffle deck over and find that card and do what it is you need to do to actually do the magic trick. So this lady's at the bowling alley and I'm doing this trick for her. And I'm starting out the trick. I said, okay, think of any card, just any card that you like. You got it in your head? Yes. And I said, okay, is it the queen of hearts? Her eyes bug out, her jaw hits the floor and she goes, how did you know? And I said, well, shop's closed. We're done for tonight. It's not going to get any better than that. Yeah. And so it appears to be like, wow, that's a one in a million chance. And the point is when you understand the context of the formula being used and the probabilities and how you are stacking the deck in order to perform the trick, you're placing certain card, a certain card or cards in certain places, or you're performing the trick in such a way as to draw out a certain card from a certain place. When you control it, it really isn't magic at all. Magic is only magic until you understand how it works. Mormon bullseyes are only bullseyes until you understand that they're really not. And so the whole point of what you're saying and what I've said is this idea that we should, even if the Book of Mormon is a fraud, we should expect to find a certain number or certain percentage of bullseyes among all the items that Joseph Smith lists. And what I'm suggesting and what I think you're suggesting is those bullseyes are within the realm of what we would expect to find within a fraud, and they are not within the realm of what we would expect to find if the Book of Mormon were uh, his, uh, historically true, if it was, if its historicity matched that of Lamanites, Nephites, and Jaredites, we would expect to find more bullseyes. The number of bullseyes we find, we should find in a fraud. Right. And so maybe I didn't do a good enough job of explaining what it was that happened with the trick, but I never got on to the actual trick part. I had just named a card, Queen of Hearts. It happened by chance to be the card she was thinking of. It's a one in 52 chance. And I stopped right there. There was no more trick. That was the trick. 
It was an absolute chance. I didn't actually read her mind. It was just. You guessed it. It was just luck, right? It was dumb luck. But that was it because that's pure magic. It's not going to get any better than that. And I left her dumbfounded and amazed. But right? And Mormonism would say you had supernatural ability. Like, wow, there's no way you could have done that. And the reality is there was a 1 in 52 chance that you could. And so, if I were to go out onto the street and do that trick hundreds of times, and I'm willing to risk the 51 failures for every success, one out of every 52 people is going to be absolutely amazed at what I just did. Right. Because once you do the failure, right, that's actually the setup for the rest of the trick. And then you go on and do a different trick. There's a there's a fallback position. In fact, that's the intended position for the trick. But what you said was very interesting before, which is that even if the Book of Mormon were an absolute fraud, you would expect that there would be certain correspondences and bullseyes simply as a matter of statistical probability, as we talked about with the solitaire game. The thing that would actually be remarkable Bill, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, but hopefully we've set the groundwork. The thing that would be remarkable is that if the Book of Mormon had absolutely no correspondences with ancient America or the Near East. Right. That would be uh, a level of outlier that would indicate something weird going on. That would be strange. The fact that we find a few bullseyes in the midst of hundreds of things that are contradictions or that are in favor of the critic, is not surprising at all. Right. And so, he talks about ancient metal plates. He talks about cement. He talks about domesticated barley. I want to talk about these really quickly because I think we've already set the idea forth that a few correspondences is not unexpected. In fact, it is expected when we compare it with all the other misses, right? Just like going through the deck and playing that solitaire game. Cement mentioned in the Book of Mormon, cement found in... Mesoamerica. Now, once again, you have to change the place of where Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon happened down to Mesoamerica, but it is down there, okay? So, that is a potential hit. Domesticated barley, all right? Book of Mormon mentions barley, which was in Joseph Smith's culture at the time. Uh, for a long time, historians and archaeologists thought there was no barley anciently in America, and then they started finding barley in America, I think it was first discovered and published on in 1983. Now, this is called Little Barley. That's the uh, nickname for it. It's not exactly the same as the barley that we have today, but there is a relationship between the two. The problem is, is that it's not found in the place where the Book of Mormon is supposed to have taken place, regardless of whether you think it's in New York or whether you think it's in Mesoamerica. It has not been found in any of those places. So, allowances have to be made by the apologists for why it isn't found in the places it's supposed to be found in. That, well, we haven't found it there yet, or it was moved there by civilizations moving. And what we end up having, especially in the case of barley, even though it's a potential hit, absolutely, but it's not an exact hit. And so when we have these types of things, it's like we're playing the solitaire game, and we turn up a two, right? But we said a three, all right? We say a three, we turn up a two. We don't turn up a three, we turn up a two or a four and we say, well, that's not exactly a three, but it's kind of close to a three. And so, therefore, we're going to count it as a hit anyway. So, if you play by those rules and say it doesn't have to be an exact hit, but it has to be a hit or something that's sort of close to a hit and we can sort of make allowances, or maybe it's a six and if we turn it upside down, it looks like a nine, that kind of thing, Bill. If we start playing that game, now we've increased dramatically our chances of getting hits as we go through the deck. Now it's not only 
a four in one chance is going to be like a 12 in one chance. So we're going to make hits as we go through the deck randomly. And so sometimes that's what happens with apologetics. I see it happening here a bit with the barley, but we'll grant it as a somewhat of a hit or it looks like a hit. Then there's the ancient metal plates. And I'll let you comment on those first things or anything else you want to say before I go to plates, because actually Joseph Smith doubtless knew about writings on metal plates when he brought forth the Book of Mormon. Uh, just to go back to plants for a second, I want to I want to argue the other side of the case, which is that if the Book of Mormon is historical, there were real Nephites, Jaredites, Lamanites. We have two separate stories in the Book of Mormon. There are the Jaredites who come across the water and land on the Promised Land, and there are the Nephites who come across the water and land on the Promised Land. In both of those stories, those two groups of people brought with them certain animals, certain grains, certain seeds, certain materials that they uh, needed in order to survive, according to them, when they got to the other side. The story tells us they brought all kinds of seeds. These would be seeds from the old world. This would be certain types of plant life from the old world. There's also stories in the Jaredites of carrying honeybees, uh, certain kinds of animals. There's certain kinds of work involved in providing food for and care for those animals. There's certain logistical is issues with a transoceanic voyage of Nephi and with the Jaredites. But if we stick to the plants alone, when they get to the promised land, the scriptures tell us, at least in one of those stories, that they planted their seeds and their plants grew abundantly. What that means is that we should find Wherever the Book of Mormon geography is, we should find old world plant life growing. The story tells us that that's the case. We don't. We don't find that. And so there are lots of places that we expect to find things because the Book of Mormon claims they're there, whether it's swords, whether it's chariots, whether it's wheels. All. And so what, what Mormonism does is it'll find one little artifact or one little drawing on a wall that somewhat resembles that. And it says like, there it is, bullseye, we've done it. When in reality, there's zero other evidence for that item or that plant or that animal being present other than a drawing that kind of looks like it. So if one example of animals, for instance, is the elephant. There have been drawings that Mormon apologists have named and said, that's an elephant, look at it. When in reality, it's a macaw bird. Um, and this has happened before. There are times where, where you're pointing out with the barley, we find some other variation that is just close enough that we can go like, oh, there it is. Uh, sometimes we do word switches where we say like, oh, Joseph said horse, but he actually, it's possible that there's some other animal. Well, when we make those kinds of allowances and loopholes, we're going to call birds elephants. When we're going to say that this kind of plant is the barley that's spoken of, when we're going to say that a horse can be anything, we suddenly remove from the table any chance of going like, we just got it wrong. And the thing Mormonism never does, its apologists never do, is go, we just got it wrong. And the reality is the wrongs are significant, and the bullseyes are few, and they're reasonable that there should be bullseyes there to begin with, as you've already gone over. Right. And when you look at them closely, they're not quite as right on a bullseye as they are maybe somewhat off the mark. Now, you brought up something here that I need to talk about. And this is a very important point, once again, that came to me as I was researching for this podcast. And this has to do with the misses, the horses, the goats, the cattle, the swine. 
the steel, right? But let's just talk about the animals right now. Because when we encounter these misses, Joseph Smith mentioning these animals among the Nephites when actually they did not exist then at that time in the Americas. The common apologetic response is, well, Joseph Smith or the Nephites themselves coming from the old world and they knew about horses there. They come over here and they see maybe a deer, maybe a tapir, maybe something that is sort of like a horse, though it's hard for me to see exactly how a tapir is like a horse. But regardless, this is a new animal to them and therefore they use an old world name for something that they know of and they apply that old world name to the new animal. So when they're talking about horses in the Book of Mormon, they're not talking about horses, horses. They're actually talking about maybe a tapir or something like that. Now, the first thing I have to say about that is that this is something that does happen when cultures move into or encounter new animals outside their culture. The most famous example of that is the hippopotamus, which of course means river horse, or it actually means horse river, but it's the, the hippo means horse, right? And potamus means river. This is the Greek term for a hippopotamus when the Greeks come over to Egypt and they see these incredible creatures and they don't know what they are because they've never encountered them before. It looks kind of like a horse that lives in the river. We'll call it a river horse, right? So that kind of loan shifting or word shifting does happen. So it is theoretically possible that that's certainly what happened with the Nephites, although it seems to happen over and over again, what with the horses being something else, the swine being something else, maybe a peccary, not a swine, the goats being something else, maybe a small deer, and the cattle being something else, whatever it is. So you've got those instances, and they do seem to happen a lot, and the more you have to use that particular apologetic response, the weaker the defense becomes. But here's the point I need to make. As soon as you put on the playing field, the idea that the Nephites are talking about something different than what they're naming at. They're not talking about horses. They're actually talking about a different kind of animal. In other words, a horse is not necessarily a horse, right? At the same time you do that, you take away any argument about barley being a bullseye. Because if a horse is not necessarily a horse, and that explains the absence of horses in Book of Mormon times in the Americas, then by the same token, if we're going to play fair and if the playing field is even, Bill, then barley does not necessarily mean barley. And therefore, finding barley anciently, even if it's not in the right place in the Americas, is no longer a hit for the Book of Mormon. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. It is a two-edged sword. And once you say that horses doesn't mean horses, and therefore that explains the lack of evidence for horses in the Book of Mormon in ancient America, you also say, well, barley doesn't necessarily mean barley, and therefore it doesn't make any difference if you find barley in ancient America. In other words, if there's a hundred things that are named, in five of them, Joseph names a thing in the Book of Mormon, and in that ancient culture, we find it. And then the other 95, he names a thing and we don't. And we go to those 95 and we say, those 95, he simply named a word, but it's a loose translation. So elephant doesn't mean elephant and horse doesn't mean horse. Then the reality is the critic has to be allowed to then come back and say, if you're going to do that with those 95, then it's also just as likely that where Joseph names barley and we find barley... That was just a lucky guess. 
and that also wasn't named right. Right, and you start to get the sneaking suspicion that the apologists are actually doing the reverse of their argument, what they say they're doing. In other words, if they find something that Joseph Smith mentions in the Book of Mormon is actually occurring in Book of Mormon times in the Americas, that is a hit because he actually meant barley equals barley. But on the other hand, if it's a horse and you don't find it, well, that's not a miss because horse doesn't mean horse. So you can't have it both ways. Either horse means horse and barley means barley, or horse doesn't mean horse and barley doesn't mean barley. What the apologists are doing is saying, okay, the places where there are hits, it's literal and barley means barley. The places where there are misses, it's not literal and horse doesn't mean horse. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So having said all of that, we've talked about the, the barley. We've talked a little bit about the cement. Granting it is a hit, fine. It's within statistical probability. Now, here's the thing about ancient metal plates. Elder Callister says the discovery of ancient metal plates corroborates the Book of Mormon because we know there's metal plates all over the Book of Mormon. There's the brass plates and there's the gold plates. There's writing on plates. And the idea being that this was something that was completely unknown in Joseph Smith's time. How could Joseph Smith have known? Well, certainly there have been discoveries of writings on metal plates, silver, bronze, gold, since the time of Joseph Smith. But once again, if you're an apologist, you only want to talk about the ones that have been discovered after Joseph Smith and not talk about the knowledge of writing on metal plates that would have been available to Joseph Smith. The first place, I'm just going to talk about two, okay? First place that Joseph Smith would have been aware of writing on plates, and actually a gold plate, is in the Old Testament. This research actually comes from a paper that was written by William Hamblin for Farms back in 2007, I think it was. But he mentions different instances of gold plates, and here he says as his first example, this is the Farms Review 19-1 from 2007, the oldest example of Hebrew writing on metal is the engraved gold plate attached to the front of the turban of the high priest. This is in Exodus 28:36. Moses was ordered to, quote, make a plate of pure gold and engrave upon it as an engraved seal. Holy to Yahweh are the words that he engraved upon it. So right there, even though it's a small example, and by small example, I mean it would be a small plate. It's a plate of gold. It's engraven upon it goes more than that, though, because in the Apocrypha, now once again, the Apocrypha are the about 14 books. They're intertestamental. They're between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They did exist in the Bible that Joseph Smith had. They were very commonly included in the Bibles of Joseph Smith's day. You'll, you'll recall he got a revelation about not doing the Joseph Smith translation, but simply skipping the Apocrypha, saying there were many things in there that were valuable and many things that were not true, but it wasn't necessary to translate them at the time. So we know he had the Apocrypha. We know he read the Bible quite thoroughly and was well acquainted with it. And another example of writing on plates comes from the Apocrypha from the book of 1 Maccabees. And this is the third example that William Hamblin gives in this paper. He says, in 161 BC, Judas Maccabeus concluded a treaty with the Romans, which the Romans engraved on bronze tablets and sent to Jerusalem for the Jews to keep there as a record. That is found in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 8, verse 22. So that was contained in Joseph Smith's Bible, that the Romans engraved on bronze tablets and sent to Jerusalem for the Jews to keep there as a record the treaty that 
Rome entered with the Maccabees. So that is an example, a concrete example, if I may use the expression, that Joseph Smith knew about, had in his possession, of ancient writing on metal plates. And guess who else has an account of that same treaty written on metal plates? Josephus. Josephus, who we talked about before, and his writing history that Joseph Smith had, Josephus's account states, however, that the Jews themselves engraved the document in bronze. So according to Josephus, he also has the same story, but he has a variation on it saying that the Jews were the ones who engraved this treaty with Rome in bronze, on bronze tablets. And actually, if you go to Josephus, which I did to look it up, there is a reference that's given there. It's Josephus Antiquities of the Jews, book 12, chapter 10, verse 6. If you go there and read that, it says this. They also made a decree concerning it and sent a copy of it unto Judea. It was also laid up in the capital and engraven in brass. That's what it says there. It's engraven in brass. Writings on brass plates and a copy made and sent to Rome. Does that sound like anything that you read about in the Book of Mormon, Bill? It seems a lot like the brass plates, huh? Right. You've got brass plates talked about in texts that Joseph Smith had and with which he was acquainted. You even have a gold plate talked about in the book of Exodus on which was engraven words. So really, it's not that huge a leap to think that Joseph Smith would have understood or come up with the idea that there was writing on metal plates anciently. And so it is certainly something Joseph Smith could have come up with on his own. And yet we can see other indicators, other accounts of the same kind of thing in writings that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with. So what we do know is that we can't say that it was absolutely unheard of that people wrote on gold plates anciently at the time of Joseph Smith. And there's no way that Joseph Smith could have ever known that people wrote on gold plates or brass plates or any kind of metal plates anciently. This is another thing where the apologist tactic is to look only at the, the metal plates that were discovered after Joseph Smith, not look at the documents available to Joseph Smith that talked about people writing on brass plates and gold plates, and then say, wow, how could Joseph Smith have known? Which is what I sense Elder Collister's kind of doing here. And I'll just add a little point, and then let's wrap up with this last little section. Um, to say, it seems to me, it's just... Uh, Oh, you know, I'm not a highly educated guy. I dropped out of college. As I as I look at the idea of writing on metal plates, it seems reasonable and rational to me that whether Joseph Smith knew that others were keeping records on metal plates or not, that cultures all across the world would have recognized the fragility of writing on paper. And noticing that paper gets more fragile over time. Any longstanding culture would, I would think, would have that understanding. Hence, any culture wanting to preserve records, it seems a natural move to inscribe something onto a metal plate in hopes that it will outlast by far the paper. And hence, that writing from your culture will stand longer the test of time. It doesn't surprise me then that whether Joseph Smith knew or not that there is evidence of cultures all across the globe inscribing on metal plates. That seems like the rational, logical extension of any culture that wants to preserve records beyond their lifetime. 
And hence, I'm not surprised when I find that. So you're pointing out there's both, there is evidence that Joseph very well could have and may likely have known about writing on metal plates. And I'm also suggesting that we also should expect to find it anyway. And hence, it just the, the strength of that bullseye seems extremely weak. Right, I agree. And so this is part of the thing where we're going through the cards, we're turning them face up. Any hit is a hit. We expect to have four of them out of 52, right? But if we start fudging on it and we start saying, well, it's close enough to being a hit and maybe a three counts as a four or a five counts as a four as well, and maybe even a six. Well, that's kind of close to a four. We'll count that as well if we just sort of uh, look at it the right way or ignore, ignore certain pieces of evidence like we talked about with metal plates. Well, now you can start to artificially increase the number of hits even above and beyond what they actually are if you're looking really for what are hits and what are not. Yeah. And this this works at every turn, whether it's bountiful and it's geography, whether it's uh, picking out a wood sword uh, and saying that's the kind of sword that's described, whether it's saying, look, there's a mention of chariots and there's a mention of horses, but there's no reason to have chariots pulled by – like every twist and turn – Mormonism softens up the story and tries to either dismiss the contradiction or connect uh, a a concurrence with another when there really isn't uh, anything that connects them legitimately. Right. And I think that what we're trying to do by taking this 20,000 foot view that we're doing, we are talking about some specific trees, but the 20,000 foot view is that, of course, this is what apologists are going to do. But the best and the brightest apologists are engaged in these kind of tactics that we're talking about. And the hits that there are are within statistical probability. And then they are artificially increasing the number of hits by taking things that are only sort of like a hit and counting that as a hit as well. And ignoring the misses and isolating them in a vacuum or dismissing them with some other trick or mechanism. Right. Or using an excuse to explain away the misses that if applied equally to the hits completely obliterates any evidentiary value that the hits have. Amen. Are you ready to go on to this last part where he talks about the doctrine? Now he's going to leave archaeology and he's just going to go to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, which he finds compelling in the Book of Mormon. Okay, here we go. Well, one of the most compelling witnesses to me is the incredible, staggering doctrine found in the Book of Mormon, particularly with regards to the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is in this book that we learn the infinite nature of Christ's atonement, its retroactive as well as prospective powers, the incomprehensible depths of his suffering, and his ability to not only cleanse us, but also to perfect us. So Elder Collister here talks about the doctrine, the doctrines and evidence of the church, how beautiful it is. Every religious system believes their theology is superior to every other religious system's theology. The other side of the coin is that Mormon doctrine, if you go read Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine, Charlie Harrell makes the point, and I think he evidences it super well, which is that every single doctrine in Mormonism has changed and moved and shifted. We don't have a consistent doctrine. Everything has changed. So when you combine those two, the fact that everybody thinks their theology is superior. So as a Mormon, I absolutely loved my Mormon theology and thought it had all the answers to the questions. Well, guess what? So do the Scientologists. 
So do the Jehovah's Witness. So do the Seventh-day Adventist. So do the Christian Scientist. They all think they have a superior doctrine. That doesn't say anything about the truthfulness of the church, that its believers think its theology is number one. And when you understand that our doctrine is changed on every jot and tittle, it also weakens the point that we have some kind of consistent thing that we're proclaiming to the universe that is so good and beautiful and solid that it makes us more true than everybody else. I think on those two points, this also doesn't hold up. Right. Well, I will tell you, I think the Book of Mormon does have some wonderful doctrine in it. Unfortunately, according to Richard Bushman, no less, the doctrine that's contained in the Book of Mormon sounds an awful lot like Methodist doctrine of the time of Joseph Smith, in which he would have been familiar with from attending Methodist church meetings, as well as services. Now, the infinite nature of Christ's atonement is talked about in the Book of Mormon. But really, when you look at those passages, all it means by infinite atonement is that the effects of the atonement are infinite. In other words, you will be saved by the atonement and you'll be saved forever by the atonement. It is infinite in its duration. That is not particularly amazing or an addition to what the Bible teaches about the atonement. He talks about the Book of Mormon talking about the power of the atonement being retroactive as far as perspective. In other words, it applies to people before Christ as well as to people after Christ. Well, that has long been an issue that's been debated among Christians. If a Christian believes, which Christians typically do, that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, Acts 4 and 12, then the question remains, what happens to the people who live before Christ? Are they also saved? And if saved, they have to be saved by Christ's atonement. So either there's one of two camps. Either they're not saved because they live before Christ, or they are saved and somehow Jesus' atonement works retroactively in order to provide grace to them as well. Here the Book of Mormon goes a little bit beyond the pale, and it gives to pre-Christian Nephites a complete knowledge of Jesus Christ, his birth, his ministry, and his crucifixion before Jesus Christ was even born. And that's one of the glaring anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. How is it the Book of Mormon prophets before Jesus know all of these details about Jesus? When you go to the Old Testament, prophets of God only have the haziest ideas about Jesus coming. And in fact, the argument can be made, which I tend to accept, which is they don't know anything about Jesus coming. But really, their prophecies are being attributed to Jesus in much the same way as Elder Callister is taking other prophecies from the Old Testament and attributing them to the Book of Mormon. So that's something, the depths of his suffering he talks about. Well, it's in Luke that the depths of Jesus' suffering are talked about as being sweating great drops of blood from every pore. And this is one of the problems that you get when you're an apologist, because when you're an apologist for the church, you learn to find proof texts in the Bible that support Mormon doctrine, right? So everything that he's talking about the doctrine in the Book of Mormon, which he claims now to be so unique to the Book of Mormon, I already know from being an apologist for so long that I can find proof texts in the Bible that support those as well. So they are not exclusive to the Book of Mormon. And once again, my apologist studies tend to work against me in this case. Yeah, and we should add, uh, whether it's Emanuel Swedenborg, whether it's Adam Clark's commentary, uh, whether it is the sermons of the Methodist ministers of Joseph Smith's day, whether it is the religious opinions of Joseph Smith's family, every piece of Mormon theology that we go like, look, isn't that beautiful? The reality is that it's found somewhere within Joseph's milieu, and there really isn't any kind of invention or uh, revealed 
truth that was hidden to the world, but instead what Joseph Smith seems to be doing, and doing quite well, by the way, is to essentially plagiarize or borrow heavily from all the sources around him when he saw something interesting or inspiring and implemented it into Mormon theology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As I think it's Anthony Miller calls it, he's an eclectic aggregator, which is a really nice sounding phrase for he would grab stuff from wherever he wanted. And not give credit to where he found it. Right. But he did manage to come up with something that was unique by taking things from various sources, little bits and pieces that appealed to him or whatever. However, it was that he amalgamated all these things into one religion, that this ends up becoming something that is now unique in and of itself. And that unique thing is Mormonism. By the way, I also have to note parenthetically that Elder Collister is talking about the wonderful, profound doctrine in the Book of Mormon. And yet, even with that first passage of scripture that he gave about feasting upon the words of Christ, which we talked about in some detail in part one, Bill, it's apparent that he doesn't even understand all the doctrine that's in the Book of Mormon. Does that make sense? In other words, the book Yeah, of- I'm not even sure he can spell doctrine. Ah, that is so funny. Did you see what I sent you this morning? Yeah, you sent me an image. If anybody's listening, if you go to the video of this, now this is a church that has $32 billion in the stock market. RFM, you sent me this morning an image from this video where it is apparent that the word doctrine was misspelled and they took another sheet of paper, wrote doctrine on it and taped it over the misspelled word. It's it's pretty clear when you see the image of this. Right. They've got this big sheet on this chart and he's using many different sheets, right? And what happens is that if you look at it closely, he's got a list. It says other evidences, one Bible prophecy, two witnesses, three archaeology for the doctrine. And this is handwritten out in magic marker or a Sharpie or something. You get down to number four, the doctrine. And apparently they had goofed up the word doctrine. I don't know if they misspelled it or what. I mean, they got archaeology right. God only knows how many times it took them to do that. But four is the doctrine. And you can see if you look closely that Something happened where they goofed up the word doctrine. So instead of starting with another sheet and actually writing it all over again, they went and took a piece of paper that is a square or a rectangular piece of paper. They wrote doctrine on this piece of paper and then they just taped it over the goofed up word doctrine. And you can actually see that if you focus in on it. I thought that was just kind of funny. All right, let's roll the tape. There is no credible historical dispute that the Book of Mormon, over 500 pages in length, was translated by Joseph Smith in about 65 days. There was but one draft with minor corrections, mostly grammatical. When I finished my book entitled The Case for the Book of Mormon, my secretary asked me, do you know how many drafts you had? I replied, no. She answered, 72 drafts. It took me several years and 72 drafts to write a book less than half the size of the Book of Mormon and much less meaningful. And people want to tell me that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon without any notes in 65 days? It reminds me of an observation made by Hank Smith. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an opinion. And my experience both intellectually and spiritually clearly tells me that Joseph Smith did not write the Book of Mormon, but rather was an instrument in God's hands in translating it. Every aspect of the Book of Mormon bears witness of its divine origin because it is divinely inspired. And of this, 
I bear my solemn witness. Thanks for joining me. I'm Tad Collister, and this was my five-minute fireside. Okay, the main thing I want to talk about here is that he says that there's no real meaningful historical dispute about Joseph Smith having dictated the Book of Mormon in 65 days. Okay, well, if he dictated it in 65 days, I think Dan Vogel has done a good job of showing how that actually amounts to about two to three hours maximum on average of dictation per day. It's not eight hours a day for 65 days. It's not 10 hours a day for 65 days. It's two to three hours of dictation per day which leaves an awful lot of time for pondering, for consideration, for possibly consulting notes. I don't know, maybe that nobody else saw, but we'll get to that in a second because apparently it's hard to believe that nobody else saw them. So when you break it down into its component parts, it becomes less and less remarkable. And you've got to add to that the fact that none other than Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Max Smith, recalled Joseph Smith prior to the Book of Mormon coming forth and being dictated, entertaining his family on long winter evenings by sitting down and telling them stories all about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, the things they did, the clothes they wore, every little detail. And that's also a painful story and reminiscence that Lucy Max Smith has from an apologetic perspective because it starts to form this idea of Joseph Smith as a young boy who was very interested in this, with the very active imagination about the ancient inhabitants of America, telling his family stories about them prior to dictating the Book of Mormon. And it starts to look like this is something that could have been germinating in his mind, not just for 65 days, but for literally years prior to the dictation. You hit on it. He has from at least 1823 to 1830, essentially from the completion of the Book of Mormon, to be having these ideas ruminating around in his mind. You've got the 116 pages, so you have him practicing out a story and working on dictation and being able to kind of perfect that mechanism and get better at it. Um, you have uh, the witnesses not mentioning in the inspired translation of the Bible that he's using Adam Clark's commentary. So it now becomes fair game that the Book of Mormon witnesses to the translation are also choosing not to mention for whatever reason, for whatever the same reason could be that they're not mentioning Adam Clark's commentary, whether Joseph had photographic memory and didn't bring it into the room or whether the scribes had agreed not to talk about those things. Whatever that reason is, that same reason now applies to the Book of Mormon. So there may have been documents there being used, but for whatever reason, they are not uh, attributed to or mentioned or pointed at. And then, like you said, you have Joseph Smith's family saying that he would sit with us and tell us these detailed, long stories about these people long before, by the way, the actual translation of the Book of Mormon took place. When you add all of that up, he had plenty of time, plenty of means, plenty of opportunity. Now, I'm still amazed at it, and I still think it's a secular miracle what Joseph Smith did, but it no longer becomes the miracle that Elder Collister is pointing to. It's not that significant. Right, and let me add a little bit to that translation of the Book of Mormon. You talked about the Joseph Smith translation and using the Adam Clark Bible commentary. It is clear to most Mormons, Mormon apologists, that Joseph Smith used the King James Version of the Bible while he was translating the Book of Mormon. This goes back at least to Sidney Sperry back in the 1940s and 50s, a professor, I believe at BYU, very much an apologist, very much a faithful member, but one who looked at the evidence and said it was apparent that what with vast swaths of Isaiah and the Sermon on the Mount being quoted almost verbatim throughout the Book of Mormon, it was obvious that Joseph Smith 
had a Bible with him while he's translating the Book of Mormon. And his view was that when he came to those parts that were Isaiah or the Sermon on the Mount or whatever it might be, he would open up his Bible to those passages and then he would read it out of the Bible. And if he came to a part where it varied in the Book of Mormon, then he would change the wording a little bit in order to accommodate the variation he was receiving by Revelation. But this is really such overwhelming evidence of the dependency of the Book of Mormon on the King James Version of the Bible in these massive instances in the text of the Book of Mormon that most apologists have gone to that explanation now. Okay, it is clear Joseph Smith had a copy of the Bible as he's translating the Book of Mormon. It is out in the open. There is no curtain. That was an idea. That was a myth that was misattributed to the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, where there was no curtain, according to the witnesses. So this is all done out in the open. It's all done out in the table, wherever the translation is going on. Joseph Smith apparently has his head in the hat at some point, but at other points, he's, he's looking at the Bible. Some of the witnesses say that Joseph Smith had no book or notes with him as he translated the Book of Mormon. They don't just say notes. They say, no book or notes. And I think that might have been Emma Smith. It was at least one of the witnesses who said it. And on the other hand, no witness mentions Joseph Smith having notes or looking at the Bible while he's translating the Book of Mormon. So what this leads me to is this. It appears overwhelming that Joseph Smith had a copy of the Bible that he's using actively as he's translating certain parts of the Book of Mormon, large parts of the Book of Mormon. And yet none of the witnesses to his translation ever mention it. And at least one says he had no book or notes. What am I to make of that, Bill? Yeah, once you open the door to Joseph using other documentation and the witnesses leaving that out of their record, then now we have space to add any document in and it having been left out of the record. And suddenly the case for the Book of Mormon becomes significantly weaker in terms of timeline and resources that Joseph Smith could have used. Right. And so let me just conclude with this other thing about magic. And this is the prestidigitation kind of magic. You learn a lot about human psychology and human nature when you do magic. And one of the things you'll learn is that when you do a trick and you really amaze somebody with this trick, right? There's always a gimmick to every trick. There's always something that happens that the person that you're performing for is not supposed to know, right? That's what makes the effect magical because they don't know what it is that's causing this effect to happen. If they did, it wouldn't be magical. It would just be, hey, that's a trick. So the idea with that, that's often called the gimmick, whatever it is that makes the trick happen. It is very common for magicians to have this experience. They perform a trick for a spectator. They're amazed by it. And now the spectator tells a third party, you wouldn't believe what this magician just did. And then they describe the trick that you just did, right? But they describe it in such a way that they leave out the gimmick, okay? So if the gimmick is something like maybe I put the cards behind my back for a minute or something and then I bring it out or I turn it over and I look through them while trying to look for a card that I named or said, are you thinking of this card, right? They leave out the gimmick, they describe it to the person and they describe it in such a way that it would have been impossible for me to perform the trick the way they described it. This has happened at least once to me, twice, three times. It happens to every magician, and it is a source of unending delight to have a spectator remember a trick, because this is the whole idea, that they remember a trick in such a way that they describe it in a way that you couldn't have performed it that way in the first place, because they leave out the gimmick. This is something that is done unconsciously, subconsciously, by this person. And there is this idea that when you've been amazed by something, you're going to recount it frequently in terms that leave out the parts that make it less amazing. 
especially if you're a religious believer. And I think that that is a potential explanation for some of these later witness recollections and statements that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. It was a crazy, it was amazing. He had a Bible there that would make it less amazing. Okay, he didn't have any books. He uh, may have had notes there. Well, that makes it less amazing. So he didn't have any notes. Okay, so those gimmicks are left out of subsequent recitations of the translation process in order to make it appear more miraculous. I don't know that it's done maliciously. I doubt that it's done with an intent to deceive, but it is done with an intent to make what one already believes to be miraculous, more miraculous, and to take out those things that could be looked at by a new listener to the story as being ways of explaining that it's not really that miraculous at all. So in three and a half hours, you and I have taken a five-minute fireside making a case for the Book of Mormon, and I think we have weakened that argument to the point where it no longer holds up anywhere near the significance that Elder Collister or the LDS Church would like to impose. And I think for anybody who's willing to spend time giving just as much awareness and thoughtfulness to the misses as well as the proposed bullseyes and to understand the context of both, I think Mormonism falls flat on its face as a work of the Book of Mormon specifically as a work of fiction. And I, but I still value that we should find truth or uh, inspiration within it. I have no problem with that. But to impose it as a historical work, I, I think it no longer holds up. I think that you're right, Bill. And it causes me some sadness to be at this point. But this is where the evidence has led me over the years. It's caused me to completely revolutionize my entire life and belief system. Is this penchant for following the evidence, looking at all of the evidence, not just at one slice of the evidence that supports what I believe and ignoring the rest, but actually trying to do my due diligence, find out what the facts are, and find out what the most likely conclusion is to which the evidence leads. I will say, I think that there are still some amazing things about the Book of Mormon. I think you've hinted at that as well. I think that it is a secular miracle is what you talked about. I think there are are some aspects about the Book of Mormon that seem to link it to ancient cultures. And these are links that I have a hard time convincing myself that Joseph Smith himself could have come up with. I talked about one of those in an earlier podcast, which itself was based upon an article that I wrote for BYU Studies, which was published about five years ago. It deals with the use of ancient Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon, and it is used in such a way as to make it appear that the author is intentionally using that numerology. I still maintain that that is the holy grail of Book of Mormon apologetics. But the evidences that are used by Elder Collister and that are typically used by apologists in support of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon do not seem to pass muster, at least not in my book. But by and large, I think that any hits are within the realms of probability, and the misses completely overwhelm the hits, and some of the hits are not such hits as they are originally declared to be once we look more closely at them. Yeah, in fact, just to give one example, when we talk about misses, you and I did a three-part episode on the Book of Abraham. I think the Book of Abraham alone essentially destroys the truth claims of Mormonism. And and yet, again, we're going to take three letters of NHM, Nahum, and call that an evidence, and the apologists act like these wash each other out, or that Nahum somehow supersedes the problems of the Book of Abraham. The reality is the misses, as you point out, deeply overwhelm the proposed hits, and the proposed hits aren't even that strong. So here we are, again, three and a half hours later, and I think we've made a case for a non-literal Book of Mormon um, and, and it takes that long to deconstruct Elder Callister. 
but so be it. Here we are at the end. And, uh, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that you and I do, um, essentially pointing out, like, let's slow down. Let's deconstruct these ideas. Let's talk about what all goes into them. I, I feel bad for people who want to watch a 10-minute fireside video and then have to listen to three and a half hours of you and I deconstructing it. But that's what happens when you talk about Mormonism. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 